If you would, take your Bible this morning and would you open up to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. I thought it appropriate maybe this week to reflect just a bit on the season before us. The Lord's table is prepared for us, as you can see before us. And we just celebrated Thanksgiving, and I trust your day was a day of rejoicing with family, day of rejoicing with friends, even enjoying food that the Lord abundantly blesses this nation with. But beyond that, if you were to strip away all of your earthly blessings and you had absolutely nothing to your name, but you possessed a saving relationship with Christ, you would have everything, wouldn't you? I mean, the the truth is we have much to be thankful for, but the greatest joy in our life is to have have a saving relationship with Christ. I mean, just to know Him as Savior and Lord is enough to be forever grateful. And so with that in mind, I thought maybe it'd be appropriate after all the turkey maybe we consumed and all the other things, if at the Lord's table is set, if we can focus on Psalm 103. Psalm 103, Shay read it this morning, you know it in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. This is the Psalm 103. It is a hymn of praise, a hymn of praise. It's a hymn of blessing, but a hymn of praise, I like to say. What's interesting about this psalm, we believe that it's David, is that there are no requests in this psalm. No requests, no petitions. It is only praise. In other words, the psalmist and likely David's praise is untouched by sadness. It's untouched by sorrow. And this psalm, 103, is the is the lyrics of many psalms, songs, excuse me. In fact, somebody has counted as many as 12 songs have been developed from 103. Uh, one was a famous one, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. It was a hymn. It was by Henry Light, and he wrote that after this psalm. But really, the psalm itself really began to take on great, proportions back in the 16th century when Bible teaching churches used this to conclude the celebration of communion. And I thought how appropriate maybe as we prepare for the Lord's table to remember this psalm. G. Campbell Morgan said of Psalm 103 that it is perhaps the most perfect psalm of pure praise to be found in all of the Bible. So significant statements. And in Psalm 103, David does this, just to see the big picture if you want to look at it on your own, and I think that will come up on the screen. He directs the individual to praise him in verses 1 through 5. Then secondly, he directs the community to praise him. And one of the things you'll note when you're just studying the Bible 
the individual is praising him because it's your iniquities. It's your sin. And you can go down your diseases who redeems your life from the pits. Then by the time you get to that second portion on the community to praise him, the verb changes from singular to plural, and everything he says is addressed to the nation of Israel, and so he directs the community to praise him. And then finally, by the time you come to the end of this psalm, he is directing the universe to praise him. In fact, look at it in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom, he captures everybody, rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So he directs the individual to praise the Lord. He directs the community to praise the Lord. He directs the universe to praise the Lord. But for our time this morning, let's focus our attention on the individual to wholeheartedly praise him in worship in verses 1 through 5. In other words, it's a call to you to praise the Lord. It's a call to you, to to me, to wholeheartedly bless the Lord, to praise the Lord. In fact, look at verse 1 with me in verse 1 as we introduce our theme. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. That phrase there, to bless the Lord, is to express admiration and wonder, gratitude, and respect to the one who's being blessed. And when God is the object of that awe, we bless the Lord. We praise the Lord. And you'll note that he opens in verse 1 with, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Look down in verse 20, 21, 22. He says, Bless the Lord. And he opens and closes with, Bless the Lord from first to last. Now, just by way of introduction as well, look who David's praise is given to. Verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord. The Lord. Praise the Lord is the thought. It's the Hebrew term for Yahweh which is the name of God, that is the great name of God, the great I am back in the Old Testament. Of course, Jesus used that name. We are to praise him. We are to bless the Lord, the one true and living God, the one who eternally exists, that's bound up in his name, who never had a beginning, who never had an end. He alone is absolute reality. All other reality he created. He is independent, the scriptures say. He is sovereign. He is truth. He is love. He is light. He is beauty. He is perfection. He is holiness. He alone is worthy of our worship. Yahweh. And he is also the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you come into this place, 
as you come before the Lord's table. We are with this psalmist to bless the Lord, to bless Yahweh. We are to give him praise. Now you'll note something, look down in the scripture again. We are to bless the Lord in this way, oh my what? Soul. Nephish is the Hebrew term for Saul. In other words, we are to bless the Lord. He is, the psalmist David is saying in his soul, which the soul in Hebrew is his self. It's his person. And it refers to an individual's total being, is the thought. A t- the total heart. The total will. David is saying, bless the Lord, look again at verse 1, and all that is within me. In other words, with my whole heart, with all my mind, with everything he has and is in his person, the psalmist says we are to bless the Lord. In other words, welling up out of his soul to God is esteem, is honor, is praise to the goodness of God. Let me just make a comparison with you. You understand this is not external worship. There is no praise band here, okay? Which seems to be the modern vernacular, not not in our church, but in many places that praise takes a greater place sometimes than the word, But he says, I am blessing the Lord. I am praising the Lord. It could happen in worship. But he says, I am blessing the Lord, oh my soul. In other words, this is not external worship. At one point I was in Israel. And I came into this place known as the garden tomb. There's some question, obviously, uh, it's not... What place that is exactly take place where Jesus died on the cross and where he was raised? We know the fact is that he did. In fact, there's within um, tradition one place called that he died at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then there's another place right outside the old wall which is called Gordon's Tomb. And many people build a case that he was crucified outside that wall at, at Golgotha placed in this tomb, which has now been titled as Gordon's Tomb. But as we were there, I remember a group of people. We had our group in one area. There was another group, and we couldn't even talk and sing together as a group because the other group was just wailing uncontrollably and moaning and sobbing, and they were all doing it. And I'm not trying to fault their heart. I can't see inside their heart. But I thought, God doesn't hear anymore through sobbing. That could be an external right where one did it, and then everyone did it, and we couldn't even hear each other in our group 50 yards away. The point being this, is that worship takes place in John 4 in spirit and in truth. And what the psalmist is saying here, I'm blessing the Lord, and it's happening in my soul. It's happening inside of me. In other words, he is holding personal communion on his self so as to not forget any of God's benefits. In other words, he's reminding himself of God's goodness. He's reminding himself of the Lord's benefits. 
In other words, with every fiber in his being, he is saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. And that phrase occurs nine times. It's almost as though the psalmist is saying, let others complain, but we will bless the Lord. Let other people bless themselves, but we're going to bless the Lord. We will bless the Lord, he says, from our innermost being to remember his goodness. Now look down just again. He adds to it. This is all introduction. Bless the Lord, Yahweh. Oh, my soul, it's his nephesh, it's his internal part, and all that is within me, bless his, what, holy name. God's name mentioned in verse 1, it's the only reference to the name of God in this psalm, is bless the Lord, it's Yahweh. Now, God's name in the scripture is And signifies his nature. It talks about his attributes, if you will. It's the very character of God. So when it says, bless his holy name, his name in the scripture, all throughout the scripture, is a reflection of his person, his character. We would say his attributes. Some people would call those his perfections. And here... We're blessing his name, and his name is, it says there, holy. Bless his holy name. In fact, do you remember back in Exodus 33 when God, when Moses wanted to see God and said, show me your glory? And it says in Exodus 33, 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, It's interesting. I'm going to go hide you in the cleft of the rock, and then I'm going to let you see my backside, is the scripture, and I'm going to proclaim, it says, my name before you. In other words, you say, what what do you mean he's going to proclaim his name? And he's going to proclaim his name, and his name was the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am. But what's fascinating is if you keep reading in Exodus 34, 6, It says the Lord passed by. He said, I'm going to pass by. Then the next chapter, he passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, it says, a God, watch this, who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What is his name? His name is a reflection of his person. His name is his character. So here when the psalmist says, bless his holy name, you're rehearsing to yourself the very character of God, the very attributes of God. So his name is his nature, his attributes revealed. But look in the psalm again in verse 2. He repeats it again, bless the Lord... Oh, my soul, says it a second time, and forget not all his benefits. In other words, he cries out in emphasis because he had need again to remind his soul. And so maybe that's true of you this morning. You think he's just saying this and writing this. No, I think he's writing 
under inspiration, reminding himself, holding court in his own soul to bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits. And so he says it a second time because I think he had, again, a need to remind his soul, to remember the character of God, to remember his nature. Spurgeon said this. He said, memory is very treacherous about the best things. Spurgeon said it treasures, speaking of memory, up the refuse of the past and permits priceless treasures to be to lie neglected. It is tenacious of grievances and holds benefits all too loosely, end of quote. So true, isn't it? The flesh, if we're not careful, in my own heart I know this, will treasure past sins and it will hold very loosely to all of his benefits. You need to be careful, Grace Church of the Valley. And I want to encourage you, but did you rehearse any of those this morning? Did you get your heart in a happy estate even today? Or have you, by way of memory, been rehearsing all the hurts and the wounds and the things of the past, maybe the hard things of even Christmas, the hard things as we look back towards Thanksgiving, this can be a tough time. And I think the psalmist is saying, listen, I'm going to bless the Lord, oh my soul, and I'm going to forget. Look what he says there. It says, and forget not all his benefits. That word for benefits is just his acts, his works. His doings is the word. Forget none of his benefits. In fact, I was reminded this week of an old hymn. Some of you have sang it. Count your blessings. Do you remember that? Name them what? One by one. Count your many blessings and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Are you counting those blessings this morning? Are you giving praise and thanks to God And again, I just note here on this aspect, it is so personal. Some of those benefits are, he he says, he heals your iniquities. It talks about your diseases. It talks about redeeming your life. It talks about crowning you. It speaks of satisfying you. It's so intensely personal. Let me ask you this morning, have you forgotten all the Lord has done for you? Israel did, certainly. Deuteronomy 8, 11 says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you. He told them right there in Deuteronomy 8, 11, Take care lest you forget. How about you this morning as we come to the Lord's table? Have you forgotten God's goodness? Have you forgotten God's benefits to you? Shall you not remember even this morning to praise him? Singles, are you blessing the Lord? Mothers, are you blessing the Lord? Fathers, are you praising the Lord? Students, are you remembering his benefits to you? Widows, are you giving praise to God? Have you done so already today? Have you blessed the Lord? Have you praised the Lord? You say, well, Scott, what are those benefits? 
Well, certainly if we had time, weeks, we could go through those. There's 17 benefits that are listed right here in Psalm 103. But if I can just briefly, just remind you of, let's say, the first four benefits. I like how Spurgeon said it. He said he selects a few of the choicest pearls from the casket of divine love, and he threads them on a string of memory and hangs them about the neck of his creatures. Let's just talk about a few of those benefits for us, to us, as we prepare for the Lord's table, okay? And I'll place them in terms of God's grace to us. Let's go. First one, first benefit, we'll just call it forgiving grace. Forgiving grace. Look, he says, forget not all his benefits. And then in verse 3, he leads out with forgiving grace, who forgives all your iniquity. All your iniquity. I think it's interesting that this is the first and great benefit. In other words, one of the greatest ways that we can bless the Lord and praise the Lord is to remember that he graciously pardoned that he forgave our sin, that he forgave, say it this way, every sin you will ever forget, even sins in the future. Certainly, beloved, as we come to the Lord's table, we've sinned more times than we can know. And the truth is, all your sins of thought, neglect, are forgiven in Christ. Now, you'll note there that he says, we use the word forget, not all of his benefits, who forgives all your sins. He uses the word iniquity. And iniquity just, it speaks of perversities. It speaks of crookedness. The word literally can speak of a twisted nature. But when you come to a saving relationship with Christ, what God does is pardon, is forgive all your iniquity. In other words, if you're in Christ this morning, he forgives your sins and he places this, does the psalmist, at the head of the list. Now, I just remind you as we walk into the Lord's table, he doesn't forgive some of your iniquity. He doesn't forgive just many of your iniquities. He doesn't forgive a lot of your iniquities. He doesn't forgive just the little sins, but rather, look at it again in 103.3, he forgives all your iniquity. In other words, past, present, and even future sins. He is continuing to forgive as we are still continuing to sin and continuing to repent. He's still forgiving. So on the one hand, he's forgiven you at all in your position, but in your practice, we confess our sin to him. Now, it could be that this psalm might play a greater role Some scholars suggest that Psalm 103 was written when David received assurance of his forgiveness in the matter with Uriah and Bathsheba. And so he just takes court on his own soul. Listen, I really think that when I read this psalm over and over again, this guy's rehearsing the goodness of God. I just think he's trying to convince his soul, how great God is. And the convincing comes, not because it's not true, but because in the flesh we have at times a propensity, as Spurgeon said, to remember our sin greater than we remember maybe his mercies. 
Think of some of these scriptures when you think of this first grace of forgiveness. The psalmist said in 32, 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Do, do you remember that, that phrase there, whose sin is covered? When the priest would walk into the temple, he would come up to the sacrifice, if you will, whatever that sacrifice was. And symbolically, he would take his hands and put his hands over that, let's say, sacrificial lamb. Then the blood from that lamb that was sacrificed would be applied at the altar. But the reason the priest would do that symbolically, even in Leviticus 1's, is there was a transfer being taken place. And the transfer was the sins that you committed were being, if you will, placed upon that sacrifice. And here is the picture. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin, your sin, is covered. Your sin, as we come to the Lord's table, was transferred, not through the hands of a priest, but through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He covered your sin. He went into the holy place once and for all. Sometimes I always like to remind people, I did in Uganda a week ago, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. In the New Testament, that's the Greek word of fiume. What does it mean? We always talk about being forgiven. We throw words out and we assume that we all know what they are. But what is forgiveness? Forgiveness both in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a promise. It's a promise. It's a promise of God that he will never bring your sin back up again. In other words, it's a picture of letting go that your sin held you in a vice grip. And then when God pardons you, when God forgives you, he opens his hand, if you will, and he forgives you of your sin. So no wonder the psalmist said there, blessed is the man, is the woman, against whom the Lord counts no, there's our word, iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, if you're in Christ, listen, you can come in with the psalmist and bless the Lord because he's forgiven you. It says in Jeremiah 31, 34, it declares the God, that God, where it says at the very end, declares the Lord, for I will forgive, it's a promise, their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no what? More. Listen, if you've come in under a cloud this morning, and I'm not trying to say, hey, pastor, like somebody told me, speak on this. Maybe you just come in happy as you could be. But, but, but the truth is, he forgives their iniquity. He remembers their sin, what? No more. You say, well, some of you are probably thinking, hey, but God knows all things. How does he not remember their sin anymore? Well, he chooses to not bring it up against you. He let go of your sin. He covered your sin. He forgave your sin. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Forget not all of his benefits. And one of those benefits is forgiving grace. In fact, the next slide in Jeremiah 33, I just love some of these because it speaks of the character of God. I will cleanse them. I like that phrase. From all their guilt of their sin, 
against me. And there, there's a proper theology of sin. All sin is against me. Like when David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. He needed that, not for his position in Christ, but for his practice in Christ. And he needed to confess that in Psalm 51. But I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin. And there's another definition of sin. It is rebellion against me. Oh, I think in our own day, so many people make light of sin. But God calls it for what it is. It is sin against a holy God. And here is the promise of forgiveness. I love the next slide in Micah. These are great. Who is a God like you? In other words, this is his person. Pardoning, forgiving iniquity, and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And in this metaphor, you will cast all our sins into what? The depths of the sea. So, well, some of you might think, well, hey, he could go get those if he wanted. I think the point is, he buries your sin. He forgives your sin. He takes your sin and puts it metaphorically into the deepest part of the sea, never to bring it up against you. Listen, let me just compel you this morning, okay? We ought to be the happiest people alive, don't you think? You this morning. Mothers, you ought to be the happiest person if you have the forgiveness of sins, here's the first benefit. If he's taken all your sea and forgave you, if he's taken your sin and covered you in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we ought to be rejoicing. Hezekiah said this in the next one in Isaiah 38, 17. It was spoken by, behold, it was for my welfare, Hezekiah is speaking, that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. You have cast all my sins behind your, what? Back. Now God doesn't have a back because he's not flesh and bones. We understand that, John 4, 24. He's using that metaphorically. That God takes your sin and puts it behind his back. It's a promise to never bring that up again on you. In fact, this in Isaiah, the next one, is so clear on the character of God. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not, what? Remember your sins. This is a promise. So the psalmist here is saying, bless the Lord, praise the Lord from the innermost part of my being, bless his holy name. And one of his attributes is that he's a forgiving God who forgives all of our iniquities. The next one says this in Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out your transgressions, and he's just speaking metaphorically again, like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Now, this is interesting because in biblical counseling, which is another reason why you should go next week and say, you might even just say, I'm going to go to that because I want to grow. The greatest issue in counseling over 30 years of ministry is a lack of forgiveness that people often don't experience with God, even though he says 
he forgives. And this is a promise. It's a promise that when you've come to Christ, he forgives, buries, casts all your sins into the deepest sea. He wipes them out like a mist. In fact, in the context, go to verse 10, Psalm 103, verse 10. You know this. He does not deal with us, 103.10, according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. What a great statement. As far as the east is from the west. And I think you know that it's clear that he didn't say as far as the north is from the south. Because if you go north, you'll run into an end south. But when you look at east and west on the axis, it's like Buzz Lightyear says, to infinity and beyond. So he takes your sin as far as the east is from the west. He removes our transgressions from us. He removed your sin. You say, well, Scott, how does that get removed? How does that get removed? It's a good question. I mean, when I'm in Rome, I was at the Basilica, if the light was on, you could go in there and confess your sins to a priest, and he can forgive your sins. And then you can walk out and sin, and then you need to come back next week and sin some more. But the truth of Scripture is this. How did your sin get removed? It got removed through his righteous life, his death, his resurrection on your behalf. You could probably say it with me in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, what? The iniquity of us all. It laid it on him. The best way I could say it is you walk out of this place and you go into your week. Your sin was covered not by a priest, your sin was covered by the Lord Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross for you, your sin was transferred from your sinful self to the sinless one. And there is the thought in Isaiah 53. It's prophetic, is it not? The Lord has laid on him the coming Messiah, the servant, the iniquity of us all. God forgives you through the work of Jesus Christ on the, what? Cross. Forget none of his benefits. I pray that you wouldn't have forgot that benefit today. I, I have to remind and rehearse myself, Lord, help me. Lord, help me be like this psalmist. Help me love him like he loved you. Help me worship, not externally. Help me worship internally. Help me not forget any of your benefits and help me not forgiving, not to forget your pardoning grace given to me. Now, I, I could push you, and I've said this to you before. How does that become yours? And what I mean by that, how does he cover your sin? How does, 
How does the forgiveness of sin become yours by way of possession? That's what I'm asking. And there's many things that that's not saying. You can't get that by your own works. You can't get that in your own righteousness. You can't get that by being religious. You can't get that by giving money. You can't get that by going on a pilgrimage. You can't get that by going to Awanas, though Awanas could be good. You can't get that because you got a godly grandmother and father. If you're a student here, it doesn't matter about the faith of your mom and dad, though I hope they're here worshiping. The Bible only provides one channel and one channel alone where that could ever become yours. And the Bible says that it's through the access of what? Faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So the only way that you get your sins covered, the only way that Christ's death is appropriated to you is when you look to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith that he forgives all of your sins. So, you've heard me share, I went into my room, 14 years old, got down on my knees. Have you done that? I'm not, not trying to say be like what I did, but got down on my knees and I knew I was on my way to hell. And at that point, I confessed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and believed that God raised him from the dead and I got off my knees. And I'm telling you, a miracle took place in my heart. Say, well, why? Because I looked up to him. I cried out to him. It wasn't something that I was doing. It was something that he was doing in me. And he drove me to my knees. And somehow through that channel of faith, the Bible describes, that gift of mercy, that gift of forgiveness, that pardoning grace, that forgiving grace became mine. Is it yours this morning? Lots of visitors come and I want that to be yours. Have you come to a place where you've come to the end of your righteousness? Have you come to the end of your own good works? Have you come to the end of your religiosity? And have you looked only to the Lord Jesus Christ, looked to his death on your behalf, recognized his resurrection, and reached out to him through the channel of faith so that it becomes yours? And then I think we understand the Bible enough that even faith, is a gift from God, but that's the only way that it could come. It doesn't come through a priest. It doesn't come through some other mediator. It doesn't come by being in this church. It doesn't come by going to the youth group. It doesn't come by going to the ladies' Bible study. It has to take place in your heart where you recognize your utter lostness and you cry out to the Savior for pardoning grace, for forgiving grace. You know what's amazing about this? A young man who's in love with his fiance or in love with his wife will go beyond all human measure at many times to show that love because of his great love for her. But what's so opposite in that picture is that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet, what, sinners, Christ, what, 
died for us. He died when we weren't lovely. He died when we were his enemies, when we were lost, when we were helpless, when we were powerful, when we were rebellious, ungodly sinners who were under the condemnation of God's wrath. He died in our place. Would you look on? It's a fascinating phrase. Who forgives all your iniquity. I've often wondered about this. Who heals all your diseases. What is that? He forgives your iniquity, but he heals all your diseases. I think it's another expression of sin being put away with. But this verse has played an undue importance in some systems of theology where they would refer to the healing of the atonement. Meaning by that phrase that if you've been saved from sin by Christ, we have been healed or have the right to be healed of all physical affliction as well. So not only does he forgive your sins, but he heals all your diseases. And I would say to you, that's bad theology, okay? Uh, it's not true for those who have been forgiven, for those who have been spared, that have a right to be spared of all physical diseases. We know that. Believers certainly do get sick. Some even die early. Many passages teach that God has his purposes even in our sicknesses. So I would say on the one hand, I just take it in conjunction with the previous one who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. It speaks of this in 1 Peter 2, 24, that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin, that we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been, what? Healed. Same phrase. So it could really just speak of just another extension of that phrase, that he's going to heal our sin, forgive our sin. In fact, it says even in Isaiah 53, 5, that by his stripes or by his wounds, we are healed and it could just be speaking of a greater forgiveness that was just spoken of. But I think there's more. I believe it also could refer to the sickness of the soul. That, that God not only forgives all of our sin, but he continues to heal our souls as the great physician. That even as believers, as pride sets in, as lust sets in, as rebellion sets in, as hate sets in in some cases, as indifference sets in, as maybe depression from trials set in. That he not only forgives our sin, but he's also a healer, if you will, in that sense, in an ongoing basis as a believer. I even wonder if the phrase looks forward to at some point in heaven when it looks that every sin, every disability, every soul-ravaging sin will be removed. So listen, we only got to one of the four, but maybe that's enough. Here is forgiving grace. It's enough that you would bless the Lord. 